Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. Well, we're talking about love today, and we're talking about grace today, and I want to start in kind of a different place. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so there's this biblical pattern, there's this biblical dance that happens, and it goes on and on, and it's talked about and really woven throughout the entirety of the narrative. But, but the dance goes along like this. There is conviction, there is confession, there is forgiveness, and there is cleansing. And, and I want you to get those words in your head this morning. There is conviction, and there is confession, and there is forgiveness, and there is cleansing. And, and so, as we think about all of that stuff together, uh, there is something about human nature, something about the way we're made that tries to invite us into a certain space where change is possible, and other I- ideas and attitudes push us out of space where change and transformation is possible. So we're kind of thinking about all of those things today and thinking a little bit about grace and what that means. So you've heard this before, and a lot of you can recite it. The words in all of their forms represent the very oldest creedal statement of the Christian faith. We'll talk a little bit about where it all came from in a minute, but here it is. It's called the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born from the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, descended into hell, on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, and eternal life. Amen. Now, legend holds that the apostles wrote this creed. In fact, the more romanticized legends hold that each of the apostles undertook to write a stanza of the apostles' creed. Uh, There aren't too many people that believe the legend anymore. It would be fair, however, to say that the, the roots of this creedal statement, the Apostles' Creed, so let's get this in our head. The Apostle Creed becomes the official core doctrine of the church in the fourth century. Uh, after Constantine declares, uh, you know, that uh, uh, Christianity will be the, the state religion of the empire of Rome. Uh, and so, but a hundred years earlier, in, in 215, uh, you have the very first really emergence of this creed. It was at that time known as the Roman Creed, but you can clearly, when you read the Roman Creed from, you know, the, the, the third century, you, you see that it is just an edited version of what becomes the Apostles' Creed in the 4th century. And so that becomes kind of important. It becomes a little bit important because we understand that there was a tradition being passed along, that something was in circulation as the creedal statement of the church, and that matters. And so as you think about that, I, I want you to think about a few things. So first of all, we know that writing in the first century, second century was a, was a difficult prospect. The tools, just, just the simple tools with which you 
uh, had to, to undertake the process of writing were crude and difficult to use. Um, uh, the papyrus upon which uh, you read or the parchments upon which you would uh, write uh, were very difficult to write on. Uh, the equipment with which you would apply the ink to the, to the writing substance was very difficult. And so professional writers, amenuenses, uh, came along scribes, people who their professional job was to commit words to paper. That just means there wasn't a lot of writing going on. And so what we know is early on there was a ton of oral tradition, both in the history of humanity, particularly among the Jews, but in the early church. So, for example, we know that in the first century the apostles were working together and they had put together a teaching uh, about the ethics and organization and structure of the church, that, that group of teaching is called the Didache. And though it wasn't really handed down and written down until a little later, we know it was circulating in the first century. And, and so we know these creedal statements, these organizational things, these fundamental ideas were being formulated and talked about among people in the early church. And it's not unreasonable to think that the apostles did have this sort of creedal statement going on. They were talking about it. They were contributing to it. They were thinking about it. Just want to suggest that there is this early dating for these core beliefs that you and I have invested in and believed in. And I think it matters because I think something's going on in Romans 8 that has something to do with our perception of who God is. And, and, and maybe, just maybe, Paul is arguing that you and I have a better perception of God. And maybe it grows up a little and we're thinking about what that means. If you ask most people about going to church, and I'll just pose this as a question. If I were to say to you, go ask your friends who are unchurched what they think about church, it, it, it's, it's a 99% chance that you're going to hear something about judgment and condemnation. That the impression that people have of what we do as the body of Christ is that we make a lot of rules and we pass a lot of judgments and we declare a lot of condemnation. Now, we might argue inside the walls here that that's not who we are and that's not what the gospel is about, but somehow that impression has been left with the people in our culture and in our world. And I would say one step further, for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus and we've made that commitment, we also feel the weight of judgment and condemnation, that we, that we manage that as a part of our theology. And, and some of us have become a little more leaning into the grace side and into the, the goodness of God and the forgiveness of God and, and those attributes, but, but we're always holding in tension our call to holiness and to, to live a sinless life and those things that, that are sort of part of the big picture, and they are a part of the big picture. And so how is it that you and I live in this space? Now, in the 1960s, we had a social revolution and a cultural revolution. And, and, and what the cultural narrative was saying is all of these layers of restraint and condemnation and judgment, all of these cultural norms, all of these societal ways in which uh, Christianity specifically has influenced the moral code of existence in our culture and our world are, are hurting us. And so in the 1960s, we had this countercultural movement that said we're throwing off all restraint. Uh, the 1960s mark this time in which we just say all the old rules, nothing applies. There is no longer any sort of judgment. There's no kind of condemnation. Whatever you feel like 
is good. As long as it's love, as long as it's loving, then, then it's okay to indulge yourself in whatever that might look like. And so we've, we've lived in this culture that's kind of been sort of throwing off this restraint. And if you analyze what it is about that, then you get a sense that people do not like to live with a sense of shame. That, in fact, the emotion of shame is a very powerful pain. And that people will do almost anything to stop feeling shameful. And I think we struggle with that. I think so many of us, even within the context of the church and of faith, we still struggle with the idea of shame. Now, psychologists make a distinction between shame and guilt. Guilt is feeling bad about something you've done, that you've transgressed some, some social or cultural or religious norm, and, and so you feel guilty about something you've done, a choice you've made, whatever. That's distinctly different than shame. Shame has an overall sense that we are worthless. It, it affects us at a different... We don't just feel bad about something we did. We just feel bad about ourselves. Mary Lamia writes these words, As a self-conscious emotion, shame informs us of an internal state of inadequacy, unworthiness, dishonor, regret, or disconnection. Shame is a clear signal that our positive feelings have been interrupted. Another person or a circumstance can trigger shame in us, but so can a failure to meet our own ideals or standards. Given that shame can lead, us through a, to, can lead us to feel as though our whole self is flawed or bad or subject to exclusion, it motivates us to hide and to do something to save faith. So it's no wonder that shame avoidance can lead to withdrawal and to addictions and an attempt to mask its impact in our own life. And then she writes, often with people who experience shame, attacking others serves to disown what a shameful person feels. In order to escape shame's self-diminishing effects, expressing contempt towards another person or shaming them relocates one's own shame into the life of someone else. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me that maybe shame is a bigger issue in our whole culture than we've ever stopped and thought about. It's a powerful and overwhelming emotion. And most of us in this room share moments in our story where we can think back to a moment where we can remember an experience, where we can remember words said to us, and we feel again the immediate weight of shame. Annette Kammerer, in an article entitled The Scientific Underpinnings and Impact of Shame, wrote these words. Now, this is a little study, and I find it to be fascinating because she's going to do two things. She's going to talk about how it affects genders, men and women, because shame is not manifest in men and women the same way. <laughs> and she's going to talk about how it's manifest in age. So, listen to this. We have all felt shame at one time or another. Maybe we were teased for mispronouncing a common word or for how we looked in a bathing suit, or perhaps a loved one witnessed us telling a lie. Shame is the uncomfortable sensation we feel in the pit of our stomach when it seems we have no safe haven from the judging gaze of others. We feel small and bad about ourselves, and we wish we could vanish. In 2010, a team of psychologists from the University of Bern studied shame in more than 2,600 volunteers, most of them in the United States between the ages of 13 and 80 
9, they found out that not only do men and women manifest shame differently, but also they found out that those of different age groups manifest shame in different ways. Adolescents are the most prone to this sensation. The propensity for shame decreases in the middle ages until about the age of 50. And then later in life, again, people become more easily embarrassed and the issue of shame resurfaces. The author sees this pattern as a function of a person's development. The identities of teenagers and young adults are not completely formed. In addition, people in this age group are expected to conform to all manner of norms that define their place. Uncertainty as to how to deal with those expectations make adolescents quicker to feel shame. By middle age, our character is pretty much set, and the norms have less impact. But then as we enter old age, worry, and specifically worries about the declines in our bodies and our appearances, we begin to feel self-conscious again. And people who feel shame are readily at risk for depression and anxiety. Now, I want you to hold that in your brains. Because what it suggests is that as we feel these emotions of shame, we have a tendency to withdraw and hide, and we also have a tendency to push the shame onto others. And it seems to me that when we talk about what's going on in our culture, and we talk about the divisiveness of our culture, and we talk about how maybe adolescents lead the way in so many ways about wanting to create a better world and, and feeling and pushing back against some things that they perceive as being unfair or unright, and they get so adamant and militant. And then on the other end, you got older people who seem so adamant and militant. I, I wonder if it's not because we so deeply believe in so many things but it's because we hurt and we're uncertain about so many things and we feel shameful about so many things. It seems to me, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when was the last time you heard a conversation just about shame? When you heard a sermon about shame, I was trying to remember, I don't know that I've ever, ever written or preached a sermon about shame. We sort of throw it all together, guilt, feeling bad, blah, 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 blah. But shame is a distinct thing. Clearview Clinic, uh, which is a clinic in the United States that does extensive counseling and writing and research about the issue of shame, uh, shares this article entitled, The Impact of Shame, Five Ways in Which Shame Shapes People's Lives. See how they apply to you. Number one, people who live in shame often avoid relationships, vulnerability, and community. Research shows that shame-led people tend to hide and conceal themselves and to shy away from real community. Number two, people who live in shame are prone to suppressing their emotions. That people who experience shame tend to reduce their path of emotion to a very narrow grid. Not a lot of highs, not a lot of lows. Don't always express appropriate emotions at the appropriate time because somehow shame has forced us into this place in which we keep it to ourselves. Number three, people who live with shame often feel worthless, depressed, and anxious. More and more studies are finding that the rise in depression and anxiety are rooted into a core emotion about shame, about feelings of worthlessness, about things that we have 
done or said or have happened to us that cause us to feel this deep sense of shame. Number four, people whose lives, who live with shame, are less likely to take healthy risks. Uh, Because we associate shame with failure, then people who live in a place of shame don't want to risk anything. They want to do things, they only do things in which they can succeed. And life isn't like that. Life in a healthy way involves risk. Not everything is 100%. Failure is a factor. And so people who feel shame tend to withdraw and not take risk. Number five, people who live with shame are more likely to relapse back into behavioral problems. Now, I want to talk about that one for a minute. So what the studies show is that when you feel a strong sense of shame, you're much less likely to have transformation in your life. Because shame has a tendency, number one, to not try to get better. We we don't really attempt. We don't take the risk to get better. We don't take the risk to grow up. We don't take the risk to mature. But also, because of the fact that shame works against our sense of worth, we have a tendency to relapse. So very often, what studies are finding is that when you find somebody with a chronic habit and they can't get over it, that if you look a little deeper, that under there is some shame. And it keeps taking away their strength to grow out of this space, to get better, to become okay. And so the very thing that we feel ashamed of tends to resurface again and again and reinforce the shame that takes away our strength then to become different and grow. And somewhere in there, from a purely psychological point of view, there ought to be some way to break the cycle, to break us out of this sense of shame. Paul considers himself to be an apostle. Now, here's a little trivia uh, if you haven't gotten up to speed on all of these, you know, all of this vocabulary. So, the apostles were those who had seen Jesus face to face. So, obviously, there's just a handful of them. There aren't very many of them. And Paul never saw Jesus face to face while he was conducting his earthly ministry. Paul was in a different part of the world. They never crossed paths. Uh, The public life of Jesus was only three years. Paul and Jesus never intersected in the physical lifetime of Jesus. But Paul considers himself to be an apostle, and he calls himself an apostle who is born abnormally. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. And so Paul says, listen, I am not an insider. I'm one abnormal. And and what he's talking about in that passage, he's talking about that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to this person, he appeared to that person, and last of all, I was the last of the resurrection appearances. He appeared to me as one abnormally born. Now, Paul, as an apostle, regarded himself as one, and that's what he's talking about in the passage, as needing to contribute to the overall idea of who God is. He's got something to say. He's got something to give. (coughs) But Paul uniquely was not an insider. He hadn't sat among those people. He hadn't heard Jesus teach. He hadn't experienced the personal kindness of Jesus. 
while that was all going on, Paul was living in a very different reality. He was living in a reality of judgment and condemnation. He was living as a Pharisee. He had used the power of shame to rule others. And he had allowed the power of shame to rule him. And it had become a way of life, this this judgment and condemnation and shame and legalism. He was, by his own omission, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew intimately the power of shame. He'd been on both ends of it, and he had lived it. And his own life theology drives his experiences. And so what he felt, what happened to him, begins to be formed into his theology. That's what he's writing about in chapter 8 of the book of Romans. Now listen to these verses. They're very consistent with his ideas and his arguments that he's just made, that we have an advocate over a judge. You can get in his mindset. Here's what he writes, Romans 8.31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, it's widely accepted that this letter of Romans is the highest writing of Paul's career. That, in fact, because it's coming at the end of his life, more and more people believe, scholars believe, and would say that what we have in the book of Romans is the summa theological of Paul, his summation of everything he believes. He's distilled things out from the early letters that he has written. We have ideas that sort of fall away, and it sort of begins to mature. His later letters display a theology that either was not present or had not matured in the earlier letters. But by the time we get to Rome, and we get to the book of Romans, we have this deeply rooted, sound, articulate, completely constructed theology that is then presented to us in this powerful way. These are the core things that Paul had come to believe and had come to teach. So five things that stand out that I believe Paul is highlighting for us in these short verses. By the way, I hope you're doing well. (laughs) This is a lot of stuff coming at you this morning. I think it matters. I think it matters that we talk about shame. Number one, God is for us. I wonder how many of us grasp the depth of that one core truth. That how many of us this morning would simply sit in space and say, I consider God to be for me. I don't consider Him to be indifferent to me. I don't consider Him to be disconnected from me. I don't consider Him to be disinterested in me. And I certainly don't consider Him to be against me. He's for me. He's pro me. <laughs> He's pro my life. He, he, he wants my life to be abundant, fruitful, meaningful, full of love, full of grace, full of relationship. 
Do you believe that? I, I mean, I don't know what our public relations problem is, but somehow we have created an image of God in the church in which we are stingy, stubborn, difficult, disconnected, isolated people. And that God desires us to be that. When He says, here's what I want for you. I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want you to love others as you love yourself. I want you to reach out. I want you to get outside. I want you to be salt and light. I want you to be ambassadors of reconciliation. I am for you. I am for you. I want you to be for others. I want you to be for the world. I want you to be for the culture. I don't want you to just go live any old way, but I want you to be a source of hope and encouragement and light. Are we? Are we even that in our own homes? Are we even that in our own circle of friendships? God is for us. Paul, who's abnormally born, who's seen Jesus face to face, who came out of judgment and harshness and dogma and a religion that was rooted in merit and performance, who had personally suffered shame and loss and weakness and failure, and it had become a way of life. He summarizes now what he has come to know about this God in this way. God is for us and not against us. I wonder if maybe God through Paul wanted to birth a church of people who followed Jesus out of love instead of fear who followed because they believed in the goodness of God. And they believed in the kingdom of God. And they believed in the claims of God. That to live this way, to leave sin behind, and to walk in a way of faithfulness is better for you. It's better for your life. It's better for your children. It's better for the, the culture, it's better for the world. We're not just giving allegiance to something because it belongs to the church. We believe God is for us. And when He tells us something, it's good for us. It's not about judgment. It's about grace. It's not designed to make us feel ashamed. It's designed to make us feel hopeful, to have a path, a lamp to our feet, Number two, he says, God birthed reconciliation. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God, through the groaning of childbirth, through the pain of loss and sacrifice, birthed reconciliation. He paid a price so that you and I, through Christ, could be set right that we could come home to the Father and, and, and be in a restored relationship of love and grace. There was a cost. Paul just simply says, listen, do you get it? God is for you. And He is so for you that He entered into the painful process of birthing the whole possibility of reconciliation. That there was a cost involved so that you and I could be whole. So that we could be Forgiven. I want you to think about the four words that we talked about at the very beginning. Conviction, confession, forgiveness, and cleansing. I, I, I want you to be in a place where the Holy Spirit of God can tap you on the shoulder and say, there's some things going on that ought not be going on because it's not good for you. I'm for you and not against you. I just want you to know, here's a moment of conviction 
when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Maybe we've forgotten the cycle. (laughs) Maybe somehow, as we've gotten rooted in shame based on judgment, we've decided to hide instead of allow God to do His reconciling work in us. But God the Father, through His Son Jesus Christ, birthed the whole possibility of actual reconciliation. I don't want you to just feel better. I don't want you to just look better. I want you to be better. I want to heal what is broken in you, and I have sacrificed so that there could be genuine reconciliation. I don't bring conviction so you feel shame or guilt. I bring conviction so that you bring confession, so that you bring forgiveness, so that there is cleansing. I want you to keep moving forward, not be stuck. Not be stuck. Number three, God graciously then offers reconciliation. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? So Paul's logic is this. God is for us. He went to great sacrifice to create the possibility of reconciliation. Do you really think that now he's going to withhold reconciliation from you? Now that he's done all of this work, do you think he's, he's in a mode where he's looking for some technicality by which he might disqualify you? That, that somehow he's measuring this out in some stingy way? No, he sacrificed all of this to open up the possibility of genuine transformation and reconciliation. How will he not also graciously give us all things? He's for us. He's for us. He's for us. He's for us. Do you feel that? Do you honestly think He would withhold His love and reconciliation or be stingy or be difficult or desire that you and I would ever feel that we are disqualified from the loving grace of God because of a choice we made or something that happened to us or something somebody said about us or some humiliating experience in our journey. Number four, God redeems who accuses. He says in verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? You can hardly read this passage without thinking of the scene in John chapter 8, that that the reality is, here's a woman who's been caught in adultery. She's guilty. I mean, Jesus never argues about the fact that she didn't blow it, that, she did, that whatever happened to her was not okay. But the pattern, the biblical pattern, is not about judgment and shame. The biblical pattern is about conviction, confession, forgiveness, and cleansing. It's about transformation. It's about getting on with your life. It's about leaving that behind and moving forward. And so simply in this moment, then he says, if God is for us, who's against us? Who is the one who condemns? And you think about this story, and it's so much of life. If this were just a metaphor, if this were just a metaphor of what you and I experience, here are all the religious authorities, all of the powers that be that have the power to make us feel shame and worthlessness And they are allied against this woman who has been caught, and she is guilty. (laughs) It's not like she's been falsely accused. 
But Jesus stands between that old way of thinking about God and thinking about church and thinking about religion. And by the way, that stuff, that dogma is not limited to the church. It has invaded politics and it has invaded our culture. And people stand over there in their dogma and judgment and they point fingers And they cause us to feel shame because we live in this very real place of being human and trying to navigate the complexities of a world that most of us never imagined would be this hard. Some of us, what we'd like to do is just get out, go live somewhere, you know, pump in. We used to talk about this, you know, you you can get out in the country so far that they have to pipe in sunlight. I'm going to tell you, I'd like to go to that place sometimes. Just get out there, you know. Get away from it because it's so complex and the dogma is so complete and it's in our media and it's in our social media and it's all around us. The church no longer holds exclusive right to the condemnation of people. It's now everywhere in our culture and Jesus stands in the middle of those who would condemn to a person who is guilty and he draws the attention away and he simply begins to remind us of this. There's not a single one of us. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he stands in that space and he looks at that group of people and he says, let the one who is that without sin cast the first stone. And eventually after riding in the dirt, one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they walk away. And now he looks at the woman and he speaks almost the identical words that Paul writes here. Woman, where are you? your accusers. And she says, there are none. (laughs) Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, the pattern is not about shame. The pattern is about conviction, confession, forgiveness, and cleansing. Finally, and I don't know. (laughs) I don't know about this, but I like it. Number five, Christ intercedes. So verse 34b, Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Listen, I, I, I don't know if this is true, but William Barclay suggested, and I like it. He suggests that Paul is actually incorporating the language that will ultimately become what we know as the Apostles' Creed. See, you were wondering why we started there. The verse 34b, the second half of verse 34, actually mirrors reflectively the, the stanzas of the Apostles' Creed. So if you just threw that up against each other, you know. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried, and descended into hell. Paul simply writes, Christ Jesus who died. The next line, the third day he rose again from the dead. Paul's next line, more than that, who was raised to life. The next line of the Apostles' Creed, He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Verse 34, and He's at the right hand of God. The final line from the Apostles' Creed, from there He will come to judge the living and the dead. And now Paul writes a different ending. And from there, He is also interceding for us. And I wonder, as Barclay does... (laughs) If perhaps Paul, in his formative conversations with other apostles who feel more qualified to speak about the reality of Jesus because they had walked with him and talked with him, and Paul, who came from his background of the dogma and the shame 
and the power structures. I wonder if he didn't sit in that space with them and argue and say, I'm not sure that we should speak about how he's judging because I think judging does something. I think the concept of judging does something to the insides of a human being. That instead of inviting them to transformation, it invites them to hide and protect their shame. And when we think of judgment, we cower. And what I want us to think about is something else. I want us to think about a God who intercedes for us, about Jesus interceding so that I open up the story of my life. I open up the shame of my life. I open up the failure of my life. I'm not hiding. I'm not afraid of judgment. I have a God who is for me and not against me. He didn't spare his own son to create reconciliation. How will he not also pour that reconciliation out on me? And who accuses me? Because God, who died and was buried and was raised and is at the right hand of the Father, is interceding for me. Oh, He's convicting me. He doesn't want me to live any old way. He wants me to live a faithful life without sin. He convicts me. And He invites me into a place where instead of hiding for fear of judgment, I'm confessing in hope of forgiveness. Because I'll tell you this, studies show that when you live in a place of shame, the opportunity to rise and get on with your life and to leave behind the broken habits and to get out of your depression and anxiety and to finally once and for all create a life that is healthy and whole and mature, that psychologists say, listen, if shame is involved, your likelihood of falling back into the old patterns is, is exponentially increased. But when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We're going to share communion as we close. I'm going to invite the band to come back. I, I, I can't think of a better way to end this day than this moment. This moment that symbolizes the incredible, reconciling, forgiving graciousness of God. And if shame is a part of your story, if shame is a part of the journey that you've been on, if, if shame walks with you and dogs your steps, if you feel like there's just so much, there's so much I'd have to unpack, there's so much I'd have to unload, there's just no way. <laughs> Listen, God is for you and not against you. He, he birthed out of great sacrifice the possibility and avenue of reconciliation, cleansing, forgiveness, making things, reconciliation, making it all right, putting it back together in the right way. And he invites us in this simple moment to not live in fear of the judgment, but to recognize that God is interceding for us. And he didn't write one or two verses. These are not taken out of context. Read the whole chapter. He's just talking about an advocate instead of a judge. And now he's talking about this wonderful gift of grace. And so in these moments, these symbols, we're going to pray a prayer of confession together as we prepare our hearts. Whatever it is you have, whatever sin 
whatever failure, whatever humiliation, whatever shame you feel, this would be a perfect day to give it up, to let it go. And then to hold in our hands the symbols of His broken body and shed blood, the actual birthing, the actual closing the conduit that brings reconciliation into our lives, that washes away our sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is the last thing I want to say. He doesn't leave us over there in the place of conviction, confession, and forgiveness. He cleanses. He washes us and makes us clean and sets us up as newborn children, whole, unscarred, untarnished, and He invites us to an abundant life. God, would You help us? As we grapple with the depth of Your teaching, as we grapple with the depth of Your Word, as we as we allow the human beings that were inspired by Your Holy Spirit and crafted for us the incredibly intricate, powerful Word of God, may all of that come together with the gift of Your Holy Spirit to in these moments convict us of the sin in our lives. Maybe it's not fashionable to think about anymore. But the truth is, some things are destructive to us, and they're destructive to others. And you called that sin, and we call it that too. And so in preparation for this table, in the hope of reconciliation, in giving up our shame and laying it aside and recognizing it for the terrible, enslaving taskmaster it is, we ask you to forgive us of our sins. We confess them to you. We desire not only forgiveness, we desire cleansing to be restored, to made, made new. May you remind us as we walk out into the week ahead, into our lives, into our relationships, that you are the God who intercedes for us, that you are interceding, that you are constantly interceding, that the reconciling God is listening to the Savior who died and was buried and was raised to life and now sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for each one of us. May we see that image. May we live in its truth. May we allow it to put to death the shame in our lives. May we choose grace over shame. And may it root us in hope. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you. Preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you. And be thankful.
And now, God, please go with us. Please guide us. Be the source of hope in our lives and lead us into a place of wholeness and health and grace over shame. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.